Morning, everyone. Good to see you in the building. Good to see that folk as well are online with us. For a number of years in my 30s, which of course was just very recently, I would, I would get really nasty, and I mean really nasty, stabbing pains in my chest. And obviously, if you get, if you get nasty pains in your chest, you're immediately a little bit apprehensive and thinking, what is going on? Well, they went on for years and years. In the end, uh, I had a particularly bad one, and I went to the doctor, and I got myself checked out. They weren't quite sure what it, is, uh, what it was to begin with, so they sent me for an echocardiogram, which is um, they put some gel on and uh, send the monitor probe thing, whatever it's called. Uh, I'm not medical, as you can tell, um, around on your chest to see what's going on in your heart. Well, apparently, it was nothing to be worried about. It was just some intercostal muscles playing their parts. But this echocardiogram was fascinating. Obviously, I didn't understand what I was seeing. But the thing that fascinated me was there was a lot going on in there. The noises coming out of the machine were amazing. There was a lot of stuff going on in my heart. And obviously, it's a good thing to take care of your heart. It's a hugely valuable part of you. But we also need to take care of our heart, by which we mean the core of who we are, the, the center of our emotions and thoughts and wills, the bit that makes you really you, our innermost being, because there's also usually a lot going on in there, isn't there, through our lives. Hence this series, How to Take Care of your heart. We've looked at a whole bunch of things, and this morning we're going to look at pursuing God's heart. What if, what if God could say to someone, your heart beats to the rhythm of my heart? What if God could say that of someone? Well, I'm sure through history there have been a whole bunch of people for whom God could say, do you know what, their, their heart is beating to the rhythm of mine. But there's one example in the Bible where specifically someone is described that way. David from the Old Testament is described in the New Testament exactly like that. I have found, God says, David, son of Jesse, a man after my own Heart. What an extraordinary statement to make about any human being. Well, let me tell you how David arrived on the scene. It's important as a contrast, as you'll see in a minute. Well, around 1000 BC, Saul became the first king of Israel. This guy was impressive. He was tall. He was very handsome. He was outwardly highly impressive. And when he became king, he had some early successes, particularly in battle against some of Israel's enemies. But he was then twice rejected by God. And God said, I will take away the kingship from you and give it to another. So 1 Samuel chapter 13, a part of the Old Testament, records that Saul, out of fear, and he was I won't go into the story. He was in a really big predicament with some enemies very close, but he's disobedient to what he knows God has said, and he offers sacrifices that he shouldn't. He was meant to wait for Samuel, and then Samuel arrives. The sacrifices have been offered, and Samuel says, but now your kingdom, Saul, will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not 
kept the Lord's command. I can imagine thinking, well, who, who is this man after God's own heart? I've never heard that phrase before. I wonder, who's this man going to be? He's surely going to be extremely impressive. If Saul was impressive, this guy will be even greater. And then two chapters later, 1 Samuel 15, Saul has been into battle. He's disobeyed God's instructions about the battle. And Samuel again comes to him and again says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. This is the first king Israel's had. He hasn't lasted long. Outwardly impressive, inwardly disobeying God repeatedly. Well, time goes by. And then God says to Samuel, chapter 16, verse 1, how long will you mourn for Saul? Because it was a tragedy that this should happen to the first king of Israel. Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse in Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the next king. Well, Samuel fills his horn, as you do, with oil. He's on his way to pour it over the son of Jesse, who's going to be anointed as the next king. And he gets there, and we read this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, that was Jesse's oldest son, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, Jesse's second son, and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, nope, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah, the third son, pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you've got? Interesting question. <laughs> Have you got any more? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's just off tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, poured it over him, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon, powerfully upon David. Imagine the shock in that scene. The little one, the scrawny one, the one who they couldn't even be bothered to get to this most important thing. The prophet of the land is coming and they can't even be bothered to get David there. Imagine the shock at David. He's the one. He's going to be the next king. And note verse 7. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. This morning, you and I got ready to come here. I don't know how many hours it took you. Didn't take me many. But we looked in the mirror. We got ourselves outwardly presentable. We put on some clothes that we thought might fit in this setting. And God didn't care a jot for it. God was looking at your heart as you got ready 
this morning. I came across a new term this week. You all know about OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. There's a new term with the same letters, obsessive comparison disorder. In a world obsessed with appearance and image and comparison, especially if you're young, where that is an enormous challenge and pressure, God's focus is on your heart, on what's going on deep inside. And it's a Christian issue too. There's a lot of inauthenticity in the Christian world. It's a huge Christian issue. How, how much am I seen to be doing? How, how does my family look? Kids, you better behave. What will people think of us? I can't possibly let anyone know about that weakness. How can I keep up or create a good Christian image? Well, they're all symptoms of heart disease, of obsessive comparison disorder that can creep into us in the church. I want you to remember this this morning. The Lord looks at the heart. He's deeply interested in the state of your inner being much more than your outer one. Let's go back to David. See, 15 years go by. He's been anointed as the next king. 15 years go by before he actually becomes king. And in that time, there are some crucial moments. You'd have to look up the story yourself. Crucial moments when his heart is clearly being molded, tested, shaped, such that he will be the man who God wants to be the next king. And then when centuries, centuries later, Paul in the New Testament is recounting some of David's history, this is what he said as we read at the beginning. God testified concerning David, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do whatever I want him to do. Now, I've been wrestling Sometimes when you're speaking, it's really easy to work out what the text is saying. I've been really wrestling this week to work out what does that mean that David is a man after God's own heart. I've got seven decent commentaries on the book of Acts. They were all useless. What is going on there? You see, if, if God says of um, David that he is a man after God's own heart, attuned to God's own heart, in step with God's own heart, conforming to God's own heart, we have to ask, what is God's heart? See, he's a man after God's own heart. What is God's heart? You ever wondered that? What's God's heart? Well, if heart in the Bible means, as it does today, the core of a person's being, their emotions, desires, the real central part of them, what makes them tick, then God's heart is the core of who he is. It's his will, his desire. It's what makes him tick. And we know, of course, don't we, that God's heart is for people. And I'll pick that up in two weeks' time. But if you boil, come with me on this. It's going to need some explaining. I'm just going to put that right up front. Come with me. If you boil the Bible's message down, ultimately, God's heart is for God. 
It's going to need some explaining. I understand that. Because here's the, here's the first question I had about that, is this. Doesn't the Bible say that God is love? And isn't love, by definition, a giving outside of yourself? How can God's heart be for himself? Let me try and explain. God is and has eternally been love in Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's how we know that God is love. He didn't become loving when he created us. He always has been love because there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always perfectly in love and community as Trinity. If nothing else had ever existed, God would have been and always was supremely happy in himself, satisfied as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, his heart fully content in himself, lacking nothing, God's existence, and this is not true of anyone else in the universe, God's existence has complete meaning in being and enjoying God. One writer put it like this. Sam Storm said, God is the most God-centered being in the universe. He is consumed with love for himself and has infinite admiration for his own beauty. I know this is raising more questions. I'm coming to them. It might beg this question for a start. Well, as he didn't need us for meaning or joy, why did he bother to create us? Do you know why he created us? To invite us in to that community, to invite us into that delight, to invite us in to share in his remarkable, amazing delight in God. What's the point of life? It's to delight in God through knowing your sins forgiven, through knowing eternal life, to delight in God, to have a heart for God just like his heart. Here's another question. Does that, does that mean that God then is some kind of egomaniac, narcissistic, self-centered? Not at all. Our issue here will be to understand that God could be perfectly like that when our impressions of that would obviously be flawed. He's absolutely not like that. God is supremely happy in himself, independently of us, because he is the greatest good in the universe. Isn't he? He is. Why would he be any less satisfied in himself as the greatest good in the universe than we would be? Which just makes it all the more remarkable that in Christ he has loved us that not needing us, independent of us, he's invited us to share in his delight in God by sacrificially sending his son to suffer and die and serve us all to bring us that greatest gift, the gift that he has always known, that God is the greatest, most beautiful, most satisfying treasure in all the world. What a God that he is so as he is and invites us into that. Let me tell you this. Sometimes Christians just focus on, well, at least my sins are forgiven. 
And that's wonderful. Jesus came to rescue you from your sins, but he came to bring you into so much more than that. He came to bring you into adoption as his sons. He came to bring you into delight, that God who is forever been delighting in himself because he is the most delightful thing, invites you to come and delight. God, help our affections. Get hold of our attention that we might find you so delightful as you are. And in David, God had found someone who believed that and who lived like it. So here's what it means to say that David was a man after God's own heart. It means that his heart is attuned to God's heart, that his heart is in step with God, that he's on God's wavelength. David's greatest treasure is God. His priority is God. His desire is for God. He's supremely happy in God. His allegiance is to God. God's desires are his desires. His desire, his will is to do God's will. And that's made explicit in this statement from Acts 13, 22 that we read. I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. Listen to this. He will do everything I want him to do. What does it mean to be after God's own heart? It means David is doing everything that God will want him to do. Saul, in contrast, was outwardly impressive but disobedient. David is outwardly ordinary. Remember, not even invited. There was no thought in Jesse's mind that David could possibly be the one who would be anointed. David is a nothing, a scrawny, out in the field. You just stay out there. The rest of us are going to meet the big prophet. But he's marked by a heart that loves God, that obeys God, much of which God has seen done in private. You remember going to sports days to watch your kids, those of you who have? It's always a three-legged race. A three-legged race is always a joke. The best bit about the three-legged race is when they get it completely wrong. One of them has to take the lead and say, right, well, I'm going to go, go, and, you, and, you, and then you both go, and then you both go. It's hilarious when it goes wrong. They end up in a pile on the floor. Saul never got in step with God's heart. David, in contrast, was in step, was in tune with God. And then this, then this most wonderful thing. Jesus is the man after God's own heart. So you can't recall the story of David as we've done and just leave it there. Because David's life shows that even he was unable through his life to keep his heart after God's own heart. So there's adultery, there's murder. His family get into a mess because of all that's gone wrong. But fear not, because as with so much of the Old Testament, there's a clear pointer to Jesus here. He is the man after God's own heart, more than David could ever have been. Jesus has demonstrated a God-first love and obedience, a desire to obey God's will, whatever it costs. 
And he has made a way for us to know and share in the beauty and love of God. If you look at the life of Jesus, he is repeatedly choosing to obey sacrificially the will of his Father. He's tempted by the devil. The third time he says, no, your word says to worship the Lord God only. He says, my food is to do my Father's will and finish the work he's given me. And then the greatest example of all. If ever there was a moment when Jesus would falter, when he would collapse in his heart, being after his Father's heart, it's this. He's in Gethsemane. This is an awful scene. Mark 14, 33, he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to his disciples. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. It's possibly the most profound and beautiful moment in the whole of Scripture of a man whose heart is after God's own heart, whatever it will cost. And so Jesus said these sorts of things to his followers too. He said, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching." Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, yes, but this is a tough calling. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. And he sent us, of course, famously, he sent us to make disciples by baptizing them and by teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see, God's plan was not only that David would be a man after God's own heart, and not only that with all the failings, he then sends his supreme son, who fully man and fully God will be the man after God's own heart. His idea, his intention is that we, filled with his spirit, will be men and women after his own heart, empowered not only by my best efforts, but by the living God, his own spirit living within me. It's the spirit of the one whose heart was after God's own heart is now living in us. So if you're a follower of Jesus, there's something in you, isn't there? And you won't say you, won't say you always succeed, but there's something within, isn't there, that says, I want to do your will. Holy Spirit, come fill us, help us to be men and women after God's own heart. A heart for God, a heart after God's own heart, a heart that pursues God and that shows itself in obedience. And if we can grab hold of something of that, it will turn obsessive comparison disorder into obedience-centered delight. God, give us a different OCD, that we might be obedience-centered in our delight. Just imagine for a moment what this church would be like if we all suffer from obedience-centered delight. Imagine what your family would be like. Imagine what your workplace would be like. 
Imagine what your neighborhood would be like. Imagine what your friendships could be like. So I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. And I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to say, where is that landing for you? Where is God nudging in your heart because you're listening to him, because you want to please him? Where is he nudging in your heart a step of obedience that aligns with his heart? I wonder if we could just close our eyes. It just helps us concentrate. And why don't you, as you sit there or as you're at home, say, God, what is my step of obedience that aligns my heart with your heart? Holy Spirit, please, just come and speak to us. Nudge us as you do so graciously. We want to be men and women after your own heart. Where is he speaking to you? Maybe you've drifted away from time with him. Maybe his nudge to you is to come back. Maybe you've been worrying about how you're doing and you've lost sight of how he did for you. Come back. Maybe there's, let's be honest, blatant sin repeatedly going on and he's saying to you, why are you living like that when you can delight in me? Or maybe he's calling you to step out somewhere and do something new. Now speak to him. If you know what he's saying to you, receive it and speak back to him. Don't shy away from it. He loves you passionately. He wants you to know that great delight in him who is the great delight. So speak to him. Tell him where you're at. And make a decision. You might need to speak to a friend. Make a decision. God is the great delight. Lord, lead us to have hearts after your own heart. Keep speaking to us. Lead us to obedience because those who love you obey you. Transform our families, Lord. Transform our neighborhoods. Transform our workplaces. Transform this church, Lord, by people who are so after your own heart that we do whatever you command us.